Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Certified cat lady, Laura Bricker, I understand you've been using pretty litter. Tell me how things are with your cats. They are good. So I have three cats. So that involves two litter boxes. Pretty litter, um, really interesting. It kind of looks like white sand. You only have to scoop out the poop part, which is kind of a nice function, and then you stir it up. But what's really cool about it is that When your cat pees, it's going to turn either yellow or green if you have a healthy cat. And if there's another color that appears, you know there's something going amiss with your cat. So the litter changes colors. The litter changes colors. So you know if it's healthy or not. Your house doesn't smell like a litter box. Um, You stir it up. Somehow, mysteriously, magically, the pee dissolves and it lasts for a whole month. It's awesome. Yeah, and the bag is shipped right to your door in a small, lightweight bag. It lasts the entire month. Make the switch to Pretty Litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code CRIME, crime. for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code CRIME for 20% off. Prettylitter.com, promo code CRIME. CRIME. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about serial, true crime, pop culture, and this week, serial episode four, in which Sarah Koenig goes in search of snitchers. Also, the Peabody Award-winning American Vandal is back with a mystery that's more than just about poop jokes. Joining me to talk about those things and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and resident turd burglar, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. I'd rather be the resident turd burglar than a professional turd burglar. <laughs> it's probably better. Yeah. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and our favorite, favorite cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Thank you. Today I am an autumn hiking survivor. So uh, folks on the Brichter Scale Rage Walk um, got a little treat to my hiking today. That's right. Because for $6 a month, you can join our Patreon and get all of Laura's fitness slash rage updates. Yeah, this was a vertical rage walk. So that sounds... It was, and um, it's not so good now. My knees are pretty much shot, so I have some wine and some um, black market stuff that Fireman Ken gave me for my knees, um, some sort of cream, so stay tuned. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Brought to you by our new sponsor, Black Market (laughs) Painkillers. I don't know. He said, just rub this stuff on it. It will work. And I was like, well, what is it? He goes, I don't know. It's good. Don't uh, worry. I got it from the police chief. We're only, we're only in the midst of an opioid crisis yeah, here. Right, yeah. What could possibly go right. wrong? Next week, three crime writers, huh? 
<laughs> also with us, finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the brilliant author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our very own Patreon book club wrangler, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Well, I uh, before we get started talking about Serial Episode 4 this week, I just want to say, true crime podcast lovers out there, those of you who are listening to this podcast who have already downloaded and tweeted about and reviewed uh, Bear Brook, the true crime podcast that is being produced at my day job, New Hampshire Public Radio, by my wonderful friends Jason Moon and Taylor Quimby, and on which I have been part, a small part of the editing team. Thank you. And if you have not listened to Bear Brook yet, if you love true crime podcasts, you should listen. Really, Laura, what do you think of Bear Brook? <laughs> this is totally I, unplanned. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm addicted to Bear Brook. It, it makes me want to pay the extra money to get it early because this is a really fascinating case. New Hampshire, knowing this area, I used to drive by this park when I was working for the Public Defender's Office. Really interesting case, but it's really well done. And I have to say, there was a little bit of a nod to Stranger Things in the beginning that I really loved. There was. That may or may not have been part, like something that I suggested be in the podcast. So if you like true crime, this is... Uh, shameless plug for my coworkers in New Hampshire Public Radio. Please check out Bear Brook. All right, you guys ready to talk about Serial Episode 4? You bet. Let's do it. Yep. In Serial Episode 4, a bird in jail is worth two on the street. Sarah introduces us to Davon Holmes, a black man who spent a year in jail awaiting trial for a crime it was later determined he didn't commit, the shooting of an infant in a car. Sarah wants to know why the charges were abruptly dropped and what led police to the wrong man in the first place. So what happened? After all that effort, wrong guy. What happened? Why did the police think it was Davon in the first place? And what happened over the course of that year to make the state let him go? At the end, Sarah learns many in the neighborhood, including the baby's family, knew who the real shooter was, but everyone abides by the code, no snitching. Now, kind of a broad question at first. I am wondering whether or not this episode, like take whether it was good or bad or what it was about and what it wasn't about aside, fits with the promise of this podcast. What we heard uh, in episode one was one courthouse, one year, uh, and the same story told week by week. And we were going to have new cases and sometimes do old cases. And then we also heard a teaser at the end of last week that I thought, you guys at least thought, promised an episode about the police shooting that had been captured on video. And this was a it big... It promised that this would be that episode, but... Well, this promised a big right turn. Well, they kind of left Laura, it. what do they you think? They promised hanging. they would do that in the very beginning. Does this episode, Laura, A, fulfill the, uh, the, the teaser last week, and B, more importantly, I think, you know, deliver on the premise of this season of Serial? What do you think? Um, well, I, I have to say, like, so so last week, I mean, then this is what was great about, like, Serial Season 1, is you'd end an episode, there'd be this sort of cliffhanger, sort of something tease to the following episode, so you would want to keep listening. And last week, we get that. We're listening to this, this story, and then at the last minute, one of the police officers who was going to testify, that was going to sink this person, um, is suddenly a police officer who's involved in the shooting. And next week on Serial. And then this week, right. it's like a completely different story um, that wasn't at all related to the story that we thought we were going to hear from last week, which is which is fine. And I understand. I haven't seen it, but some people said, oh, they, they mentioned it on their Twitter or their Facebook page or something that there had been a change in the order or something. That. And this would be coming. I didn't see that, but somebody did, did tweet that out um, 
about that because there were some people like, "What? Wait, what happened?" I I feel like for me this this season of Serial is um, I kind of miss that week to week same story that's that's got that narrative that you you want to keep following the same thread because I feel like we're definitely getting a lot of information about the criminal justice system. But so you feel like it maybe breaks the promise of that premise. Yes. I, for me, I mean, it's well done, but it's not that same type of story that we got in season one and season two. So I was a little surprised why they had this episode at this point in the series, because it seemed to me that the connection that it had was sort of showing sort of the irrelevance of the justice system in, in these particular cases, and that the people who were affected and the people in the neighborhood kind of knew what the deal was, and the justice system was you know to the extent that it was doing anything was kind of floundering around mm-hmm. and, and coming to the wrong conclusions when you know the people affected already knew the answers so which is you know i guess kind of an interesting point but to put it this far forward like i that seems like something that i would put towards the end mm-hmm. uh, just sort of thematically so that was that was kind of my i, I wasn't sure why we were getting this so early right. and i'm not sure how do you go from this back to the courthouse? Because you've sort of undercut sort of in some ways the importance of what of what the justice system is doing in the community. And I would have thought that would have been like something you might want to end on rather than kind of throw in, right. you know, three weeks in. Well, I had the same feeling because last week's episode, episode three, was all about justice in the community. We heard the community meeting, which took which was a reason to go outside the courthouse. That was the bridge between the courthouse where the cops and the lawyers do their work and the community. And that happened last week. And I thought, uh, listening to last week's episode, that uh, the episode we were supposed to hear this week, which it sounds like they did make an editorial change. And we all know there are reasons why that happens sometimes. Although this serial, the season has been, what, two years in the making? So, mm-hmm. you know, the idea, I don't know, was legal, whatever reason, why they had to make the last minute change, who knows? But um, to still be outside that courthouse, if you think about the strength of that first 10 minutes of the first episode of this season, which... I believe I said on this podcast was like the best opening of any episode of any podcast I'd ever heard. The promises, one year, one courthouse, week by week. From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's serial. One courthouse told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. I do feel like I was okay with last week's episode leaving the courthouse, but this week I felt it broke the promise. Why are you so slavish to the construct of what you think? Because that's what they told us would be. You shouldn't make the promise if you're going to break the promise. But it's about a look at the judicial system. I mean, just because he was let out of jail and isn't physically in the courthouse, it's not worth the story? No, I'm not saying it's not worth the story. This is not my critique of the episode. This is my critique. We haven't talked about the episode. We've talked about whether or not this episode belongs here. Can I tell you something, though? When I look at what people are talking about on social media around this, not just on our Mm -hmm. Facebook page, but larger, I've seen a lot of sort of swirling questions about sort of the standalone nature of these last two episodes and how the first episode made it they were she were very plain. We have tons of access. We're going to talk to everybody, cops, judges, lawyers in this place. And now yeah. two weeks in a row, we're not in the place. So I was hoping for like, um, you know, that movie they show at Christmas every year. What's um, with Hugh Grant? Uh, uh, Love Actually. Love Actually, yes. Love Actually. And you've got all these different characters. And then in the end, 
They're all connected. I was kind of hoping for that with this, I but I don't really feel like... I think smoking crack. I really do. <laughs> okay. I think you are three or all smoking crack. Wait, you're, you're lumping me in on this? Yes, Go I ahead. am. Toby hasn't even said anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Just Go ahead, I'm Kevin. a betting, Go I ahead. Yeah, you are. Defend it. Well, I don't think you can make the judgment that this doesn't fit the whole thing until we've heard the whole thing. Okay. I think you have to look back at that. And plus, you called these two episodes, these past two episodes, standalones. But judging just by the teases... These are the only two episodes that have a part two or anything more to them coming up. Right. I don't know. I think it's just like if you're sitting here thinking that this meal is going to be bread and then soup and then salad and then the entree, if you think it's that conventional, then you're probably going to be disappointed when you think something doesn't... Like, but what if, if you, someone tells you it's going to be bread and then soup and then salad and the entree? They said that. They did. They didn't say it's going to be this. They said it's and one then the second week it's going to be... Sure. In a courthouse. That's what they said. I think when you say literally in the courthouse, it can only be in the courthouse. You can't go no, and talk to I'm people okay in the house. I'm okay with going outside the courthouse. I don't know. I, 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 think it, I think over there is a forest. This was a good episode. Over there Why is a forest. Why are you with me right now? And I'm just saying you're looking. <laughs> so we need to be patient, Kevin. What you're I'm saying, saying is we need to be, need to be patient because it's all going to tie together and she's going to weave it all in. And we're being a little too impatient to find the meaning. We here. said the I don't same know, like, thing in season two. I don't know if she's going to weave it all together, but you can't say she hasn't wove it together based on how much we've we've had. It's just you just can't say that. We are making the same arguments in serial season two at exactly this point. Uh-huh. And at the end of serial season two, we all said we're not sure that it all stitched together super well. I'm just saying, like yeah. sometimes yeah. Okay. the promise is it's okay. It doesn't mean the episode wasn't good. After I, I did a program in, in Vermont yesterday and afterwards I went out for a beer with my sister and my, my brother in law and um a listener, uh, Kate Kozior so she was asking me where I thought this was going. Like so and I guess that's kind of the question is do you need a sense of of where where things are headed or is it just like every week it's just like okay, well, let's see what happens this week and you know maybe at some point it will it'll kind of the larger scheme will make sense. I don't I don't object to what they're doing, but the way it was kind of built seems a little like, I don't know why you would say that if that's not what you're going to do, essentially. Uh, this episode is about uh, snitching and the no snitching mantra sort of in the criminal justice system and how people are not willing to talk uh, for fear and for fear of their lives, for fear of all sorts of kinds of retribution. It's demonstrated by that that scene in the courthouse. That's right. Just now, saying, folks. OK. It's a burn. Are you going to be a, a little baby all <laughs> this entire toast. episode? Oh, no. Shots fired. Shots Are fired. Are you going to be a giant baby this whole episode just no, because okay, someone said intro- a woman can disagree with you without you being a giant baby? Just saying. God. Okay. Oh, God, people. Oh, God, me too. <laughs> Maybe Kevin needs some pretty litty kidder litter. <laughs> pretty kitty litter. Laura Bricker. <laughs> Yes. We hear uh, Sarah talk about how muddy cases become because of the no snitching rule. You were a defense investigator who had to find witnesses to go into court and talk in cases. How many times did you see or did you see the no snitching mantra muddy up cases that you worked on? Um, I saw it a lot, but I have to say that listening to this episode, um, it was kind of a different level here because it was definitely something where, you know, the whole... I'm not going to snitch on this person. But I I more often than not saw people who would then eventually sort of look out for their own butt and maybe give a partial truth about what happened, not the whole truth. Um, But in this case, I was just really amazed that like 
nobody would say shit right. like at all. And to the point that it really became an issue where it was like this whole like, well, they should, the police should be doing their jobs. I'm like, and, and I, and this is, I was like nodding along with Sarah. Yeah. And when she was questioning them, they, well, how can they do their jobs if nobody will talk to them? Right. Like, you know, so it was really kind of detrimental to anything even happening. So it was sort of perpetuating the cycle that they're in because nobody wants to change. So I saw it um, and I definitely saw it more, you know, people really holding on more so in bigger cases. In smaller cases, people would be like, yeah, fuck this. And, you know, um, depending on what it was. But this seemed to be at a different level, which I don't know if it's just a different area, um, but definitely a lot, people holding on a lot harder to that sort of, they called it a religion at one point. Right. Well, the whole case with Davon Holmes and whether or not um, he shot this poor baby, we hear about this crime at the beginning of the podcast, Sarah goes to talk to him because none of the cops will talk, none of the lawyers will talk, and so she just goes directly to talk to him. And you know, we should go back a little bit. What happens in the episode is that the episode opens with a homicide detective, Rhonda Gray, who I kind of wish would be a character in this podcast because she was so awesome. We, we hear her being interviewed about a crime, which is the shooting of a five-month-old infant in a car. I listened to her screams as they went through the ER. And I watched the mother, the grandmother, wash blood off her as she tried to save the child. And I just want to say to the citizens of Cleveland to speak up. It's time to speak up. So Davon Holmes is the guy that Sarah Candy went to talk to. He was indicted on this crime. He was in jail for the crime for a year and was let out of jail unceremoniously because it turns out he didn't do it. Everybody's saying you did it. We know you did it. Me, I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't there. I heard about the child dying. I feel bad, but I'm not the one that did it. Y'all got the wrong guy. Yeah, you you a baby killer. You did wrong. Yeah, you that's the phrase they use, baby killer? Calling me a baby killer. It's calling me all type of baby killers and cowards and just belittling me all around the board. So let's talk about this interview. Uh, this is one of those interviews where, you know, for all the times we talk about Sarah, you know, sort of O'Reillying people and, and, you know, her style of being like very personable in a way that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. This is an interview that to me really works because Davon Holmes, as a character in this episode, goes from the guy who was wrongfully arrested for this crime that he didn't do. And it sort of shifts partway through the episode. Um, Kevin, what do you think of this conversation that, that Sarah has with this guy? Well, first of all, um, it's good to know that uh, Sarah Canning does occasionally get laryngitis. Yes. <laughs> because things change. Vocally imperfect once Vocally imperfect, yes. It must have been uh, interviews over a series of of time. I, I know. I thought it was, uh, it, was, it was good to hear him in his own words. Um, and I think that's one of the things that she, she lets him do is uh, just kind of go and uh, tell their own story. But she isn't afraid to, uh, to jump in and interrupt to, you know, in a very natural way. I sometimes you know, was listening, and um, I can't remember exactly uh, what uh, quote it was, but it, you know, it was going on, it said something really interesting. And as a broadcaster, I would be like, shut your mouth and let them get through all of this and it's golden. Right. And I wouldn't have stepped on it. But she was okay stepping on it because it's sort of what they said was there's a natural reaction would be like, you know, like what? Yeah, this was when Davon later in the conversation was talking about his sort of lack of remorse about all of his, you know, criminal past and other things that he did. And Sarah really pushed him on that. I don't have 
remorse for nothing I did. Why not? Because I did it. So what? I can't be sorry for something I did. I can only only change from it, but I ain't going to be sorry for what I did. I don't, I don't regret none that I did like that. Even if I see somebody today that I harmed, that I did something years ago, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to be, when, as soon as I see them, honestly, when, as soon as I see them, I'm going to get in defense mode. You get it? <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably weird to you. He is weird to me. All right. So, uh, Toby, one of the things that was really interesting about, you know, this case and the fact that Davon ended up being fingered as the shooter was that it relied on something that we've heard a little bit about in other podcasts. And Sarah does a very sort of efficient job explaining and talking about the series of witnesses who over time came to remember that Davon was the shooter of Aviel Wakefield. They don't mention the studies, I started looking into this, that talk about how when eyewitnesses pick out someone as the perpetrator in a police lineup, they identify innocent people more than 30% of the time. 30%. Or the ones that say you're never supposed to show an eyewitness the same photo more than once. So, yeah, nearly two months after the fact, the landscaper is suddenly 90% sure of his ID. What did you think of this entire sort of inaccurate memory section of the podcast? What we know, I mean, what science knows is that memory is very easily corrupted. And I think that might actually be the word they use there. You know, what, what, what feels like strong, very real memories to you can in fact be quite off. Like your, your, con- your memories are constantly slightly changing. So this idea that you would be showing the same person in a lineup again and again, especially over the course of time. And then a person would see a face that they recognized from a lineup before and then sort of mentally place that at the scene of the actual crime is, is not surprising. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, unless there, it seems like that is almost even likely to happen. And I think that this is the kind of thing that happens, you know, probably more than we want to, you know, sort of contemplate. You know, and his thing was like, I'm going to go with my instinct. I'm 90% sure it's this guy. And that seems like exactly what you would say. It's yeah. like, that guy's face looks familiar. Yeah, it's from the the other lineup we showed you. Right, exactly. Which is which you're not supposed to do, apparently. And that would be why. I, it wasn't surprising. The fact that Devon spent a year in jail based on this is sort of both ludicrous and maddening. Mm. Although he's got like, you know, there's that other sort of theory about why he was there. That's right. Do you want to just talk about the other theory for a second? Like, what was the other theory, Toby, for our listeners who may not have heard that part of the episode? Okay. Well, the other theory is that uh, he was he was basically put in there to stew. So he would they, they thought that he knew who the shooter was. Right. And the idea was that you would just keep him in jail until he eventually was like, I want to get out of here. So I'll put my finger on the guy who actually did the shooting. That's right. Um, and it's... You know, it's kind of presented. I think it's the father who does that, right? Yep. The f- father of the of the victim, and mm-hmm. it's just kind of put out there, like like that's kind of a common sense thing. Like, yeah, well, that that's the, that's what they would do. Well, that's one of the things that struck me about this episode too was the you know these people in this community have so much contact with law enforcement yeah. and with crime 
that the casualness with which they talk about crime, I mean, I'm going to skip ahead of one scene that I want to talk about because at the end of the episode, closer to the end, uh, Sarah does go to talk to Charles Wakefield, who was the father of the baby who was killed in this shooting. And even though he is very emotional and becomes very emotional, but he's talking about the person who he knows did it, and he's talking about the 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 way that they went about uh, arresting Tink, which is Davon's nickname. It's all very clinical. It is. Um, and, you know, I experienced this a lot when I was a defense investigator because it's like it just sort of becomes part of your vocabulary when it's something that you're used to being involved with. You know, it, it wasn't a big deal for a lot of people when I would go out to talk to them because you know, this wasn't like their first rodeo. This uh, was something they had been involved with before. In this case, though, like as a listener, it's it's a little bit disheartening to hear that the, you know, shooting of this five-month-old infant, and then I think there was another child that was also shot by mistake. That's right. And that that is now sort of like, I wouldn't say they're taking it in stride, but they're, I mean, it's it doesn't seem like it's super shocking to a lot of the people that are involved. It, it is to us as listeners, but to them, it sounds like this is something that they think could have happened. So that's that's kind of disheartening to hear that that's right. sort of where the people that live in this area have gotten to. It's their reality. I mean, and that really comes out in that second case you mentioned, the three-year-old named Major who was shot and at his trial. In order to demonstrate the power of this no snitching code, uh, Kevin you know, in the courtroom scene in in this trial, you know, there's a witness, RJ, who watched this three-year-old named Major get shot, went Mm -hmm. over, uh, tried to save the three-year-old, wrapped him in a shirt, put him in his car, brought him to the hospital. The prosecutor, the the female prosecutor we hear, Anna, knows that he knows. And the guy literally has a tattoo. A tattoo. No snitching. That says no snitching. (laughs) Right. And he's up on, and he doesn't know what to do. Right. I ain't gonna lie. I'm trying to, I don't I don't know what to do. RJ begins to spiral. It's hard to follow, which I have to think was at least partly by design. He says he's got all this pressure on him, and no one can help him. He's even has COs in prison. He's serving time now on a different case. What should he do? Should he testify? He feels it was right to help the baby, he says. The best thing he ever did. But a lot of people on the street are talking about him, threatening him. He's getting in fights in prison now because people have heard he's a snitch. What did you think of that scene? Oh, I think it, I thought it was pretty dramatic, and you know, it was illustrative of what the issue is, like how deeply ingrained it is. In the last episode, we start off with this community meeting between police and residents, and we, there's a moment where a police officer asks a resident who happens to be the mother of a, a, a slain uh, a child, "What can you do to help us with this?" And 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 she said, "Why are you asking us to do your job?" And we all listen to it and go, yeah, 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 that's right. And then we come to this episode, and here it's like this is the reason why the question – it may be a silly question, but this is why it's asked. What can you do? Everybody, nobody can say who did the, who pulled the trigger. Well, we heard that Every- in, in the case of that trial, um, the trial with the murder of that child major, some of the gang members would show up at the trial and sit yeah. in the courtroom, right, right. watch the testimony. Right, but is the, so when someone says because this no snitching thing, this this isn't a modern inner city crime thing. This goes back to the mob, you know, even more. 
you know, the thing about, well, you shouldn't snitch. The rationale is not because the justice system is going to treat you poorly. It's because the street is going to treat you poorly. Yeah. Right. So it isn't don't snitch to help yourself. It's don't snitch to jam the rest of us up. And so that's where, you know, the collision between that scene from episode three and this philosophy comes together. Here's where, you know. You could come up. Right. And and at the end when the dad is saying, you know, well, the police should just come in and, you know, figure it out for themselves. And Sarah's like, well, I mean, they would need to talk to people to do that. People would need to share information unless mm. they were there exactly. or psychic. Exactly. And uh, no, it just so that's that's a problem. There's a bridge there that needs to be crossed. It's an unwinnable game. Yeah, kind of is. Well, I want to talk about that interview with Charles Wakefield, which I think was the heart of the episode. That, mm-hmm. that you know, you know, Davon's interview sort of was interesting. It was dramatic. It took this turn where it turns out he's this kind of remorseless guy who's done a lot of bad stuff. And there's a great passage where he talks about um, he doesn't regret anything because it's what he did. And Sarah's basically like, that's not what, like, that's kind of like not what regret is. It's not about uh, yeah. whether you did it or not. But that's just, that's just like, I'm not going to deny that yeah. I did it, so I can't regret it. Didn't I mean, you go to school? Yeah, I stole from teachers. That's not what I meant. That was food. a moment where that really, really worked. Let's just play that clip for a second. And were you just skipping school all the time, or were you going to school? No, I used to go to school, run a horse, fight, steal from teachers, breaking their cars. This wasn't what I meant by going to school. I actually love that clip, which is like, that's not what I meant by going to school. But anyway, so this interview with Charles Wakefield, I mean, one of the things that adds like a lot of suspense to it is, is they bleep out the name of the person that he fingers in the interview as having done it. But there's peril here. There's peril for him. Obviously, Sarah Koenig and the serial team is aware of the peril because they decided to bleep out the name. He lives with and goes to the store and sees... On a regular basis, the man that he knows killed his child. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, you know, it's tempting to say, like, how can you see that person and not just, like, attack them into street justice? But, like, that is how comfortable with crime this community is. And it's, like, part of the code baked in, too, is, like, I have grief. I know you did this, but the no snitching and that code runs so deep that, like, I can't do anything. It's I don't know if comfortable paralysis. is the right word, but they do have I'm not a, saying they have a like relationship they... of some kind with the idea of living in a crime-ridden This is part of the code. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's that they're comfortable or uncomfortable. No when, but... no, when I say comfortable with, I don't mean they like it. I mean they are accustomed to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting dynamic in that you're willing to, or not willing, but but sort of have to kind of live with the fact of unpunished crime in order to keep up the end of no snitching and, you know, keeping the justice system at bay to the extent that you can. I think I got the impression that it was sort of a combination of sort of a mistrust of the of the justice system and B kind of the acknowledgement that that that's not the most powerful force out there now charles revelation that he knows who the killer allegedly is you mean beep yeah i mean that that's sort of the climax of the the episode but i there was a really great moment for me which was we find out that davon was there at the shooting yep and we had just heard him say over and over again how he wouldn't snitch on somebody mm-hmm. if it was this if that if it was his mother if it was and then 
for some reason, I was surprised to find out, oh my God, he was there. Right. And he didn't say anything. Why? He just told us why. Right. I thought it was just like a great twist. It was a twist, but it also maybe discounted like so much of so many of the other things that he told her and it sort of no, put, I think it absolutely proved it everything proved he had to them, say but it also made you understand like so imagine like a well-meaning cop who's doing their due diligence and actually investigating this uh-huh. that's what Sarah's doing she's doing her due diligence and she's actually investigating this she talked to a guy for a long time who she liked who was super honest with her so honest that he told her that he didn't regret any of the stupid criminal right. shit he'd ever done and then, and he also demonstrated. He also showed right to her face how unhelpful he would be. That's right. Where you think he's being helpful, but he's not. Right. And then when you look back at this, you were like, "Oh my God, it was all there the whole time." Right. And now imagine she's a cop trying to solve Bruce this Willis case. Willis was a ghost. Right. Exactly. We didn't know it. Exactly. And that's the position that even well-meaning like law enforcement people find themselves in when they're trying to investigate these cases. That is the unwinnable game here, yeah. right? No, it is. It's it's they're setting you up in a situation that there's no way you can win and it's like both sides are so stuck in their way of thinking, but at the same time, that way of thinking is just continuing the cycle and it's not going to change. That's right. And now we're not doing a thing where we're saying there are many good people on both sides. We're not doing that, but we are acknowledging that there is something at play here. That I think this episode does a good job of showing, not telling, but showing. There are some things beyond what true police reform can tackle. Potentially. Yeah. Right. Th- that's a hard thing to come over. That's- Which is I, why I agree with Toby that this episode may have fit better later in the series. Maybe, yeah. We'll find out in the end. I make agree with you on that. Well, let's do what we do and just give this episode a grade. This is episode four of season three of Serial. A bird in jail is worth two on the street. Laura Bricker, what letter grade did you give this episode and briefly explain why? I'm going to go with B plus because I feel like um, I was waiting for a different episode. We had a little bit of a bait and switch. Uh, me personally, I'm hoping for more of, I know it's one courthouse, but I guess I just like one story or stories that are a little more interconnected. And honestly, for me, I guess coming from my background, I wasn't super shocked by a lot of the information in this because I've worked in the criminal justice system. So, but it was it was a really well done episode. I mean, there's nothing. It's just I'm going to go with B plus. Tell you, Ball, what about you? Yeah, I guess I would put it in sort of uh, the B range. You know, I, I I agree with Laura in that you know it was like well told, kind of interesting stories about stuff that I think we already knew. Hmm. So it wasn't like particularly revelatory in any way. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I also thought some of the some of the writing stood out to me as being not very good compared to other serial writing. Like Sarah, like did a lot of heavy lifting. I thought with some of her delivery for stuff that did not seem like natural talking, mm-hmm. um, and to the point where it like kind of stuck out at me, which I I think I usually just kind of don't really notice that much. I yeah, I just it didn't it didn't feel off to like the quality of the previous episode. Yeah, I'm going to go with B2. I mean, I would say if this were an episode of This American Life, I would say A minus A. I mean, as a standalone story, there were some very emotional scenes. It wasn't bad at all. But it, in terms of delivering on the promise of what this story is supposed to be, it felt dis- discordant to me. And because it felt like it was out of place, the scenes that were emotional... I was 
so busy trying to figure out what it was I was hearing that I was not drawn as drawn into them as I should have been as a listener. And maybe that's on me. Maybe that's on the sort of larger arc of the production of this. I don't know. I have one other issue, which is basically that as somebody who listens to a lot of true crime podcasts and reads a lot of journalism, I did know a lot of the information in this episode already. It wasn't new. The memory stuff wasn't new. The sort of procedural stuff wasn't new. But that I mean, it, I'm not saying it was bad. If anyone else made this, it would be an A. For this show, I'm going to give it a B. Kevin, what about you? I'm an A minus on this one. I thought uh, the story was really interesting. You know, we're talking a microcosm uh, of uh, you know what's happening in the justice system, and it was an interesting case. For this, this episode was an hour long, and I just think that maybe there could have been. I want to say some some additional data points or additional scenes just to sort of it, there were a couple of really two big acts one with Davon and one with Charles and I, just for all that time I think it probably could have been used a little better um, but it's still an A minus for me it's a good look uh, not just you know we've been talking about inside the courthouse and you know in the mind of the police department I think this is a good look at life on the street right and I have to say that you know if you're <laughs> Don't say something tasteless. You know, you never have to reach for your waistband yeah. when you're wearing Tommy John underwear. Okay. <laughs> that seems unrelated, but that's cool. Because they have the stay put waistband. Okay. Yeah. Are you and that'll pro- help you with your life? I think if you're in a hallway. Does this mean you're actually wearing underwear, Kevin? Yes. I am. And I have to ask. <laughs> you're not Winnie the Pooing? <laughs> no, I'm not Winnie the Pooing. And I will, I'd like to la- ask our listeners, are you proud of your underwear choice? I am now, because I have lots of Tommy John underwear in my drawer. Yes, yes. Rebecca tried to rid the world of Tommy John underwear by buying all of it. I did my best. Tommy John obsesses over every little detail and stitch by using fabrics that perform like nothing you have ever worn before. And Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free, guarantee. Rebecca, you obviously too late for you to claim that because you obviously love this underwear too much. I do love it too much, but it doesn't mean I can't buy more, Kevin. Yeah, but you know, you've been doing that secretly, and now that I've been doing the laundry and I start seeing how many damn pairs of Tommy John underwear you have, yep. I realize that you might have a problem we have to talk about. Do we, I need, think, do we need to have a more serious conversation about this? I think our conversation is just focus on whether or not you're doing the laundry right, Kevin. Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, there is a better way to take care of your goods. Uh, go to Tommy John. <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> take care of your goods? Go ahead. Hey, I'm just I'm just reading what they put down on the paper. It's it's client approved. All right, go ahead. Client approved. Go to TommyJohn.com slash crime, crime for 20% off your first order. That's Do TommyJohn.com slash crime. crime. 20% off. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. What else you got, Kevin? Well, our friends at Grove believe a healthy, beautiful home should be accessible to everyone. They're and that's right. why they made it so easy to get products that you can feel great about. You can find the best uh, healthy home and personal care products with Grove, all of which have been rigorously tested for health, effectiveness, and environmental impact. Really like it because they can send right to your house some of the best non toxic products. Brands that you know, like Mrs. Myers and Seventh Generation and Method, these are brands we're using already around That's our right. home. That's right, totally. And we can just, you know, get them sent to us uh, through the mail. You're in control with customizable auto shipments 
delivered to your door, and you can pause or cancel anytime. Hey, it's not the Columbia Record and Tape Club, folks. That's right. You do have some control, some agency for setting reminders, so you never run out of the products you use every day. And if you're uh, you're all caught up, you can pause for a little bit. I like all of the cleaning products, but you know the fun things that I got from Grove. Were the dish towels? The dish towels, freaking awesome dish towels. Yeah, and the, the, the pot scrubbers and pot scrubber with the soap thing built into the little cup. Yeah, it's amazing. Neat. Yeah, find out how committed Grove is to its customers with a 100% happiness guarantee and free shipping. It's so easy to discover amazing and affordable natural home and personal care products with the confidence of supporting a safer environment for your family. Our listeners can try Grove with a two-month VIP membership Ooh. and a bonus gift. Can I get that? VIP membership? We can. I'm all about the VIP. We actually already have it. Okay, go ahead. But you, fair listener, can get it by going to grove.co slash crime. Crime. That's grove.co, not grove.com. I typed it in, and it was like, you sure you don't want grove.com? I'm like, shut the f*** up, Google. I know exactly what I want. (laughs) I know exactly what I want. It's grove.co, C-O slash crime. Grove makes it easy to have a happy Healthy home. Grove. Moving on. Netflix is, by the way, can we just talk about the fact that the season one of American Vandal won a Peabody Award and how awesome that is? Yeah. Netflix's Peabody Award winning mockumentary American Vandal is back for season number two. After discovering who drew the dicks last season, but did they discover that? I don't think they did. I think it had an ambiguous ending. Peter and Sam go on to an elite Catholic school to find a new criminal, the turd burglar. Most of us just shit our pants right in front of everyone. People are just trying to find a place where they could shit. This was the worst thing I've seen in 20 years. Before it was all over, it had a name. The Brownout. American Vandal again uses the tropes of true crime documentaries to tell a quasi-ridiculous story about high school dynamics, social media, and our fascination with the true crime genre. It somehow turns what could have been an extended poop joke into a mystery we actually want to solve. Note to listeners, we are going to be talking about a spoilers in American Vandal. Big spoilers. So if you want to... Big stinky spoilers. You can jump to our spoiler-free thumbs up or thumbs down review by checking the time code in the show notes. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is the framing device. The show had something really big to overcome here, and we talk about this a lot with second seasons. The first season was allegedly a student-made documentary that we're watching on Netflix just because it's a joke and like... Quasi-Blair Witch It is, it is yeah. what it is. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of season two, there's a framing device in which we learn that Season one was actually a really shitty student documentary, and they show us the actual footage that Netflix had optioned, which was why the season one we saw actually had like the drone footage and the reenactments <laughs> and all the other the 3D stuff. 3D graphics of and hand that, jobs uh, instead of 2D <laughs> graphics. Exactly. And that's how they got all that fancy stuff. And now that season two has happened, people all over the country are submitting their cases um, for this second season. Uh, Kevin, would you think that was stupid or clever? That was clever. Yeah, it, it still kept it kind of grounded. You, it can it can pull you out of the texture a little bit in order to get the the mockumentary feel that they're going for, which mm-hmm. seems very much like the keepers to me. To get that, with also having the the believability that this is a student run thing, so you're able to see it, and you're like, okay, we understand why they have all these crazy reenactments at this school. 
it's because of Netflix. They're helping them do this. As right. opposed to wondering like, oh man, how do they freaking do that? Now, season one had its own patsy, its own like potentially wrongfully convicted protagonist, Dylan Maxwell, who I'm still a little bit in love with, not going to lie. And in season two, we also get a potential patsy, a pretentious, awkward, tea-swilling, fact-touting teen named Kevin McLean. Toby, um, what do you think of this character? Can you relate to him in any way? The fruit ninja. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Should stay in McLean. Can I relate to him in any way? <laughs> it seems like a loaded question. You uh, both are on house arrest. Rebecca, yeah, that was a I good mean, setup. <laughs> our love of obscure teas and um, yeah, no, he's a he's an odd he's an odd character. <laughs> I don't know really know what else to say about it other than. Well, He's like a he's an intentional eccentric. He's an intentional teenage eccentric. Now, Toby, I am curious on a storytelling level. What did you think of the setup of this and that framing device they used to convince us in like what a five minute scene that it's completely okay? There's a season two of this thing that high schoolers make that involves them getting on a plane and going across the country. I think they had to do something, right? I mean, they, you know, if you're unless they're going to just have two different kids at a different high school, if you want to keep those characters, you had to come up with some story as to. You know, it's not going to be like it's going to uh, something else is going to have the high school. <laughs> like so, in the beginning, someone mowed a dick into the, 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 right. the football field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it, it it was fine. It was kind of funny. I have to say, you know, given and granted, Kevin and you and I watched this a couple weeks ago. We didn't watch it this week. You know, and obviously, I think our listeners know we taped this on. This comes out on Monday. We taped week before. Everything going on this week in the news kind of while watching this show <laughs> and everything that's happened this week, it did feel like a yes. weird, like sort of weird parallel well, situation. Yeah, because they had skip day in American yep. Vandal. And regardless where you fall and whatever has been happening in our country, we had um, the same sort of incident during the recent Supreme Court hearings where there was a day where they all went off and they had beach week. And there's a lot of parallels to American sure were. Um And I was like, huh. And then everybody in the Senate shit their pants. It's like how <laughs> disco repeats itself every 30 years. Now, Laura, I have a question for you, though, because I think the first season of American Vandal, it sort of took us by surprise a little bit of the way into the series, how it really was confronting some real criminal justice issues. And also created like a real mystery that we were interested in. This season, in episode two, immediately goes into a critique and like real look at interrogation techniques. Did you notice that the second episode was about the Reed technique and how they got Kevin McLean to confess to this crime? Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely, in this entire series, um, use a lot of what expert witnesses to commentate and I love the expert oh, yeah. witnesses where they come in and they you know they'll, they'll do an interview and then they'll bring the expert witness in well they really should have done it this way or you know blah 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 but it was great and it was definitely like you know in this situation you could see oh this is definitely a false confession to the poop incident but it was like they were definitely relating a lot of what was happening to actual scenarios that had happened in criminal justice and doing it in in, in a funny way but also kind of a savvy way in the way that they sort of snuck that in there. Yeah, the episode essentially is just making a murderer and the whole thing with uh, Brendan Dassey. Brendan Dassey, yeah. And you see, like, you know, Kevin tries to confess to the the T-shirt cannon. He's like, how did the poop get in the cannon? And you see him, like, trying to sit uh, on it. He, he obviously doesn't know what right. what, what it was. And, and that was, uh, 
you know, that videotape part of it. I thought that was brilliant. It was very clever. Um, now, there is a game-changing episode of the season, at least for me. And that's the one that brings high school basketball star Demarcus Tillman into focus. Now, I want to read what The New Yorker wrote. They have sort of a glowing article about the series, but they talk in particular about this character. In The New Yorker article, it says, uh, Tillman is played by Melvin Gregg, who, although he is about to turn 30 in real life. Okay, that just gave me pause right there. (laughs) Yeah. He got a start as a web star, and he's so fluent in the comedic potential of social media and captures the cocksure charm of the high school athlete golden boy, whether he's offering discourse on frozen yogurt or celebrating a dunk by pantomiming the playing of violin. Tillman strides through the school like a young king, a good-hearted, if not especially wise one, uh, treating his fellow students and even his teachers with a hilarious kind of noblesse oblige. Except, of course, Tillman isn't exactly right when he says that weird is the new cool, It would be easy for him being so gifted to think so. I loved this episode that brought Demarcus Tillman into focus. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Somebody called the police because Demarcus stole the show. Not He did. Not just because of this actor's performance, which was brilliant, but because it brought, without telling us, I think, another social justice issue into the frame, which is the idolatry of amateur athletes in high school and college settings and how there's an entire system kind of built around them that both insulates them and moves them up, but also objectifies them in a way that is not cool. I just thought it was so pitch perfect, this entire like NCAA amateurism debate that I see going on all the time. Kevin, did you pick that up too? Um, Yeah, when you told me that. So I guess you're thinking uh, second Peabody. Is that what you're saying? Now? I don't. I think it was the strongest storyline of the series. Was the Demarcus Tillman storyline? Toby, I think it just it's surprising because it is a silly concept, and uh, they play it out so well that it does have sort of all these sort of deeper offshoots. You don't even realize that. Like, no, they're actually doing a good job talking about that. It's just because it's framed in this satirical device that. You sometimes don't realize that uh, there's uh, some medicine with that spoonful of sugar. Toby, what do you think? Did you pick up on that at all, or am I alone here in thinking that was like an important thread in this series? No, I, I, it definitely was, and especially for that episode. And I, and I, you know, I think there's been other. I mean, isn't Friday Night Lights, which I have not watched, but it seems like that was sort of a similar thing, right? It was sure sort of the deification and pressure and all this stuff for you know a 17 year old kid who suddenly you know, is carrying in this case, you know, this, you know, high achieving basketball school, you know, he's a really good character like his. And I think the New Yorker kind of nails it in that he seems very kind hearted, but also like fairly self unaware Mm -hmm. that he gets to act the way he acts because he's a stud basketball player. And that if he was acting like that and he was like a little like kind of dweeby guy, like some of the guys he like, sort of kids around with the the reception would be quite different mm-hmm. um I, th- I thought that was, I thought that was good it was, it was effective I thought he was an appealing character I mean he was he was like I think the guy who there's like the closest emotional connection to as the thing goes forward oh I completely agree with you and he also has this sort of redemptive arc in the series where you know Lara we see him at the you know obviously it's, it's, it's sort of it's sort of a complicated story, which we'll get into in a second of sort of how the the crime and the mystery part of it plays out. 
But Demarcus Tillman, as you see, just like with NCAA athletes, has hanger honors who mm-hmm. are sort of dependent on him. Lou. Who think that like everything he does or doesn't do is going to change their life too? He's able to act in a way that's privileged. We see him taking cell phone calls in the classroom and just mm-hmm. like joking with a teacher about it. But we all see the other side where he's not from this affluent neighborhood yeah. where all these other kids are from. Yeah. He's from a poor neighborhood. Yeah, and that plays a big part in his redemptive sort of arc story too. As as we kind of learn more about his culpability, and also in the fact that he's also being objectified and used. By the system in his school, right? Yeah, basically. I mean, it, it, you know, what my kind of takeaway at the end was, was like they kind of brought him into this school because he, you know, he's a really good basketball player and, and they let certain things slide. But and, and so he knows he has a great opportunity at this school. But at the same time, he kind of knows that they're using him. And he also, I think you kind of get the sense, feels the sort of difference in himself as compared to the people that, you know, the girl who has like the whole library named after her family or whatever it was <laughs> exactly. um, with the giant bust in there who's donated, you know, and that he really came into context, I think, when the guys and I think it was one of the last episodes went to his house and mm-hmm. you like see his house compared to the house where they're staying with their big giant cork boards right. um, with that girl, Chloe. In like her carriage house or something. A giant fireplace full of logs. Yeah. And then you go to this like little ranch house with like this like, you know, old fence around it where he's from. And it's and I think it just sort of illustrates this sort of divide, but it also sort of illustrates, you know, he definitely was definitely aware of his his how he was different from the other kids in the school. Uh, Laura Bricker, what'd you think of the hot janitor episode? <laughs> I loved Hot Janitor. Oh my God. That was like my favorite episode of this whole thing. They're like, Hot Janitor. Even the teachers like Hot Janitor. Um, Mrs. So and so or whatever. Um, I think the cat lady like. I hot loved janitor, Hot huh? Janitor. And I loved that Hot Janitor <laughs> loved kale. And he's like, Do you want to yeah. try some of my kale? Oh. Um, but you know what? What was funny to me about Hot Janitor was when they went out to his little bus in the woods. All I could think of was um, Castle Rock. I'm like, Oh my God. This is like the guys in the woods in Castle Rock. These guys totally. are going to murdered out here 100 <laughs> percent. um but i liked how he was like super forthcoming like he's like, oh yeah blah 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 and he just like told the whole story with like not even like fighting telling the truth really <laughs> there's just so much of this which was funny but it was like really fast yeah like when demarcus walking through the the hallway it's like hey that's big head ed <laughs> but he got a big head though uh and then you see, like, him posting on uh, on social media, like, him playing with Asian Josh. Yes. He's like, uh, <laughs> but he's really Mexican. Yes. You know, it just, like, something, like, really fast. It's very and, high school. Right. But he also, you know, the idea of acceptance, uh, I think, was a very positive thing. Because, again, I think you touched on this before. With De- the DeMarcus character in other stories, this kid would be this, the high school jock. Yeah. He would be a, he would be, this is the benevolent king. Right. He here is like, I'm the star, but he gives love to everybody. Thoughtlessly, though. Thoughtlessly. But to the character, in his truth, it's honest. Right. He's not the 80s high school movie villain where he's like, I'm the big, you know, swinging dick. I'm going to knock the books out of your hand. Yeah. Revenge of the nerds or something. Yeah. He was, you know, and that way he was different. And that's part of what made him so charming. What makes this show so charming to me? And this is, I had the same, I think, response to the first season is diversity, like there's diversity of characters that are intentional. You know, you have like DeMarcus, uh, who is like 
intentionally a black character who is being objectified by this very like rich white school for his athletic ability. And that is intentional because it's like a social story they're trying to tell. But there are also like a lot of other kids in the episode who are black, like the super religious kid and like Marcus DeMarcus is saying her honor. And then you have like Asian kids and there's like a whole like lesbian storyline, which is almost like inconsequential. I mean, it's it's part of the story, but it's not like made a big deal of. It's like diversity, not for diversity's sake, but diversity just built into the fabric. That's what I mean, but by acceptance, I mean, throughout. Yes, and yeah. I, I, but I actually think that is reflective and honestly reflective of what teenage life is like right mm-hmm. now. And that's like the New Yorker article. The reason I wanted to point it out, what they pointed out was that um, American Vandal, you know, intentionally or unintentionally has a point of view on teenage life that other stories like this don't quite capture. Whether or not you think it's successful or not is is doesn't matter. But the but the point of view of it. And I think one of the really great examples of that is one of the clues that goes through three episodes that helps them solve the mystery is about the glitch in the yeah. Yes. Right. yes. Yeah. It's really smart because that is yeah. something a sixteen or seventeen year old would see that an adult would, would not notice. see. Yeah. Right, Laura? Oh yeah, absolutely. I was like I was watching that and I was like, oh this is like absolutely some, they must have a, like a teenage consultant or somebody that's super savvy consulting on this. <laughs> this is absolutely something that a teenager would pick up on. And like, I would be like totally oblivious to it. And they'd be like, no, uh, Rebecca couldn't have done it because she didn't update her iPhone. Uh, it was Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin is the one who did it. And I'd be like, what? How do you figure that out? Oh, the glitch. Oh, okay, what? Like, but they would, that, that's like totally just part of their vocabulary. My daughter walked by and she's like, oh, that was so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and how old is she, Toby? She's like 12, right? She's 13, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm just using the L. Now, Kevin, uh, quick question. The whole thing with poop. Like, we thought that was going to be like a series, but they didn't really do a lot of poop jokes. The season weirdly was more grounded, even though it was about poop and last season mm-hmm. was about dicks, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there was there was a throwaway line when they're talking about, you know, what could the motive for this, the brownout have been? It says, well, poop is funny. Yeah. Poop is funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, it's, again, it's just a, a device... You know, it's it's the uh, it's the poop MacGuffin. It's just it, the idea is just the this poop guffin. The poop guffin. It's just getting the story going, and I think it's brave in the sense that a, a brave writing thing because it's like we're just going to be bold. We're going to be silly and profane, and but we're gonna we're gonna build a real serious mockumentary. If there's that can be true, you know, we're gonna build a real true crime. A documentary around this silly, silly crime. Right. And play it straight. All right. Now, Laura, I know that there was a very complicated solution to this mystery that involved many perpetrators driven by a criminal yes. mastermind of the type yes. that you would see like in a uh, a classic James Bond film with a villain sitting in the cave with like a big, long plan. Uh, sitting of in the kiosk that, in the mall. The cave yep. was just a mall kiosk. Uh, was the outcome of the mystery satisfying to you? Yes or no? I had mixed feelings about it. I do too. Um, because I was like, wow, that wasn't where I saw that going. Um, up until the episode before, I thought it was something completely different. I almost feel like in the last episode, they tried so hard to like do this big twist finale reveal um, that none of us saw it coming. And I don't know if it really felt genuine after that because it was just like so far out of left field to me. Like, where the hell did this guy Grayson come from? I never heard of him. You know, the best part of that whole thing was the dump warning. Um, and I yes. loved other people giving their 
like where they were when they heard the dump warning and the kid was like, I was so scared. I thought we were going to get pooped on. And I was looking in the ceiling. Like it was just like, <laughs> so I felt like it was almost like they did try too hard at the end. Um, yeah. I, you know, I did like some of the graphics. I liked the graphics they used of the cell phones in that episode, but not quite where I saw it going because it kind of went right back to where we started in the end. Quick question. Would you hire the Horsehead Collective to play at your child's party? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it depends if Miles is part of it because um, yeah. I think Miles really added to that group once he came in. I mean, he had yeah. the whole bot mitzvah. Yeah. Uh, you know, he had the racket going. But don't the you interviews think- were all really good. Yeah. At first, we didn't know it was poop. But then someone said, it's poop. And we knew. <laughs> I did love the then, interviews then, with the kids. How did you get access to the teacher's lounge? We used journalism. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, what did you think of the Horsehead Collective? I'm dying to know. I know you're a big fan of uh, alternative music. Yeah, that is that's usually right in my uh, right up my alley. My actually, my daughter didn't know what I was watching, and she came in and she kind of looked and she kind of squinted at the screen. She's like, "Is this for real?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it no. most certainly is not." I think they've got a future. They just need to mature a little bit. I, I do think the Horsehead Collective, though, it's another one of those things that's like so in tune with teen yes. culture. Yes. yes. Those horse yes. masks, like kids fucking love those yes. horse masks. It's like yes. a Reddit yeah. thing. It's like a mm-hmm. meme huh. thing. You know, we had to buy, remember we had this like T-Rex costume that they walked around yeah. Oh my God. Your kid, one of your kids skied in the T-Rex costume. Yeah. He also skied in a gorilla costume. I'm just going to say. <laughs> yeah. Sally Roll. No judgment. There's a group at my son's high school that played on like spring fling or something that was not too different. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's do what we do. I mean, I know that we all have different opinions about this. We just talked about some of the highlights of American Vandal season two, but thumbs up or thumbs down. Would you recommend if our listeners, if they haven't checked it out yet, should they check out Netflix's follow up to the Peabody award winning American Vandal? American Vandal season two. Uh, Laura Bricker, what do you think? I say, yeah. You know what? It's a it's a fun watch. Um, it's it's definitely something kind of lighthearted, but it's also very smart the way that they. Um, it's definitely uh, the ode to the true crime documentary um, world that we find ourselves in, but done in a very fun way. And you know what? Hot janitor. That's all I'm going to say. That's all you're going to say. What about you, Toby Ball? Would you recommend our listeners check out season two of American Vandal on Netflix? You know, I, this is a funny one because I didn't really enjoy watching it that much. Uh, but I think it was more just everything else that was kind of going on. And it I wasn't like in the mood for like something quite like this. So, so the I was, was getting you down. Yeah. And it's like, okay, now, now like. That's the first for you. Toby needs to wear feces, a horse head. He'll feel better. <laughs> feces everywhere. And, you know, I don't want that to say, to discourage other people from watching it because it is like, as we were talking about it. Uh, I started feeling better about it because there is like a lot of clever stuff, <laughs> yeah. and there's some, uh, especially the character of Demarcus. I think is it's he's a, you know, a, a very interesting, strong character for 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 a show. So um, I, I would recommend that people check it out, even though I did not like it as much while I was watching it at the time. Yeah, I'm going to give it a thumbs up for me. I mean, I American Vandal, when it first came out, was so innovative and crazy, crazy good. Very hard to follow up, obviously. This is a worthy sequel. 
because it was more grounded. It did really show aspects of teenage life that American Vandal season one touched on, but in a more like humorous way. This was much more grounded. I think the themes were bigger and more interesting. And you can quibble as to whether or not it was more addictive or whatever. That doesn't matter. Demarcus Tillman and Hot Janitor 100% makes season two of American Vandal <laughs> worth watching. That and like the recreation of the vomiting in the teacher's lounge. I really enjoyed that part. Uh, Kevin, what about you? Yeah, I'm also a thumbs up. Whereas season one took every trope about true crime documentaries and podcasts and sh- shone a light on them and made us realize you know um how ridiculous how we ridiculous, are yeah how ridiculous it, it is season two doesn't try to do that it takes sort of the universe it's already created and tells a different story but tells it in a way that is true to what american vandal is and mm-hmm. so i think that that's that is enough to say it's a good series to watch i, I think people will really enjoy it and remember you know with the brownout try not to shit your pants <laughs> And I got to say, though, if I ever do shit the bed, mm-hmm. I hope it's not when I have my Brooklyn and sheets on. The no bed. kidding. No kidding. Yeah, we're sponsored by Brooklyn and named the winner of the best online betting category by Good Housekeeping. As Brooklyn it be. is the fastest growing betting brand in the world. Look, we've talked about the sheets from Brooklyn and for a long time, right? We love them. We, we, it's, it's, it's established. The four of us have them. We love them. Can I talk about something else that Brooklyn and has? Um, Please, because I'll buy it. They're down comforters, (gasps) right? Shut the front door. So they have the all-weather, and they have the lightweight. Okay. So uh, they are handmade in Canada with white Hooterite down, right? It comes with the same lifetime guarantee. It's just thick enough so that it's warm and comfortable and smooth. Mm -hmm. And all of this, they have all sorts of stuff. They have towels. They have pillows. They have blankets. And what sets them all apart is the same thing that sets... The, um, the sheets apart, and it's how they make them with the, well, with the cotton that they use. They use this long thread. They, I, I can't explain it all. But Do you see my face right now? I know. It's like your jaw is on the ground. I cannot wait to shop immediately after we stop taping at brooklinen.com. Yeah, don't stop at the sheets. Get the comforter. Get the towels. Get the pillows. Live the Brooklyn and lifestyle. I think they even have candles. I don't know. It's just surround yourself <laughs> in Brooklyn and luxury. My, my cats love the Brooklyn and luxury. Let me tell you so what. My they dogs. tuck. They tuck themselves in every night under their Brooklyn and sheets. <laughs> and again, the whole thing. It's just. It just feels incredibly makes your life better. And Let's be real. Makes your life better. Yeah, our Brooklyn and sheets are the best most comfortable sheets that we've ever slept on. Brooklinen is giving an exclusive offer for our listeners. Get $10 off and free shipping when you use promo code CWO, CWO. at brooklinen.com. Hey, maybe go get Laura's it. writing it down. I can hear the phone. I can hear you writing it down. I am writing it down. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Get sheets and or get some other stuff. You get a whole bundle. I'm getting a Why duvet not? cover. I'm getting a duvet cover. Do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. $20 off and free shipping. You will love these sheets because they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty in wow. all their sheets and comforters. Now, the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code CWO at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code CWO. Brooklinen. These really are the best sheets ever. What else you got, Kevin? Well, support for this podcast is brought to you by Park Row Books. 
publishers of Under My Skin by New York Times bestselling author Lisa Unger. Hmm. Under My Skin is an addictive psychological thriller about a woman on the hunt for her husband's killer. When Poppy's husband was brutally murdered, she spiraled into an oblivion of grief, disappearing for several days, only to turn up ragged, confused, and unable to remember where she'd been. Those lost days never stopped haunting her, and when she begins to sense that someone is following her, Poppy is plunged into a game of cat and mouse, determined to unravel the mystery around her husband's death. But can she handle the truth about what really happened? Can she? Under My Skin has been named one of Fall's 2018's most exciting new mysteries and thrillers by Bookish, and one of the most anticipated crime books of 2018 by Crime Reads. To get your copy of Under My Skin from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, or wherever you find your books, go get it or listen to the audiobook today. Now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime, crime of the Week. Of the week. <laughs> Officials at Washington State's Olympic Park are airlifting hundreds of mountain goats who have an insatiable thirst for human pee. <laughs> These particular goats are not native to the park and their food sources are limited. Instead, the goats have become a, quote, whiz at scavenging for urine left by hikers and campers. This is how they get salt and other minerals, as it turns out. Since the 1920s, these little squirts have grown to a herd of more than 700 animals, and their pawing and digging for piss has damaged the park. Also, a hiker was gored to death by a leak-licking billy in 2010. Jesus Christ. Gored by a goat? Yeah, that wants to drink your pee. Jesus Park officials that can't, is not how I want to go, folks. Wow. Park officials can't sterilize the pea-loving animals, so they're being transported by helicopter to a national forest where the food sources are more abundant. So here's my question for you, crime writers. There's got to be other ways to help these urine-drinking mountain goats. What can we do to help? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Um, I don't know what to help, but I have to say that I kind of wish I had had a mountain goat today on my hike down the mountain because um, I'm not so good at navigating the rocks and they could be like little Sherpas. Um, So I think we could like find them some new careers, train them to be little Sherpas and we could just all like as payment pee in a bottle for them. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, you don't even have to do a bottle. You can just do it right there on the, on the well, trail. Well, but then they, maybe they wouldn't attack us and like you oh, know gore right, us yeah. with their horns if we were like, here you go, little goat Sherpa. Toby Ball, what do you think we can do to help the pea-loving mountain goats? I sort of object to the idea that we need to take them out of their environment. And what I would suggest is that we lay down some of that cat litter that we advertised <laughs> in the beginning, and people can just use that. Uh, oh, that's a good idea, Toby, because it just disintegrates. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. For once, Kevin, I haven't answered the question. So can you ask me the question so I can answer it, please? Okay. Uh, Rebecca, what should we do to help out these pea-loving mountain goats? We cannot have asparagus before we go hiking. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> we can leave those urinal cakes all over the trails. Oh. <laughs> That's a good idea. All right, Kevin, what do you think we could do to help the pea-loving mountain goats? I like pea. Still like pea. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nothing wrong with pee, really. <laughs> Wait, do you like pee? Have you ever had too much pee? pee? I like, have you? <laughs> oh, so I think what they should do, have you ever seen like during wildfires when they have those planes that fly overhead and drop the whole giant thing of water? Yes. I think you get R. Kelly. Yes. Oh, geez. And All right, maybe you can figure out. <laughs> All right, we should probably end things on that note. Before we wrap up the show, Laura Bricker, do we have a Cat of the Week this week? 
We have a horse of the week this week because <laughs> I promised last week I was going to do a different animal. And also I was going to select it from the new Brichter scale true crime rage walking group that we have. $6 on pa- a month on Patreon.com. On Patreon. Media. Yeah. So <laughs> my uh, one of our members, Emma Cassidy, she would like to submit Dixie, her eight-year-old ex-race horse who is partial to a cappuccino of a weekend. Um, he is preferably likes a jam donut. We're English, me and him. He's Irish. So not sure if they're called something else in America. Uh, rather less appealing. He's also partial to the vet. Seems he likes needing stitches in his legs and numerous repeating x-rays. So um, he That's has weird. some... Yeah, he's got some issues. He also rage walks on occasion. When I wake him from his Saturday afternoon nap to take him to use a water treadmill, he got me through so much these past eight years, not the least the death of my dad. And honestly, he kept me together when I was falling apart and I would be truly lost without him. He also has some very nice outfits um, that you can see if you see this post (laughs) in the Rage Watching Facebook group where she posted a lot of pictures. Um, So thank you, Emma. Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. At the $6 level, you also can submit your health-challenged horses. Laura Bricker, if people want to um, submit their cats, dogs, or any other animals for Cat of the Week, how can they reach you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Joey, if people want to reach out to you and, um, I don't know, give you some consolation because it's clear that you are coming down with a little fall cold, how can they find you on Twitter? Uh, at TobyBallNH. And Kevin Flynn, if you want to reach you on Twitter, how can they do that? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And I'm going to abdicate my credits time. I'm at RebLavoy on Twitter and Instagram. But you have some people to thank, Kevin, so do that very quickly for us. I want to thank everybody that donated to my walkathon, Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. These folks uh, donated a little bit to help the... Crisis Center of Central New Hampshire, Sarah O'Reilly, Krista Coria, Rachel Harrison, Rebecca Epstein, Ben and Noel Bruning, Claire Cantwell, Kylie McElvin, Jennifer Rubenstein, Nikki Manns, Jessica McInern, Emiliano Diaz de Leon, Katie Vepraskis, Ann Rogers, Carol Coelho, Lee and Suzanne Kozier, Kimberly Hoffling, Wendy Martin, Lisa Miller, Melissa Hodenfeld, Bonnie West, Maura McClellan, Courtney Casadilla, Rebecca Lavoy and Anonymous. This show is recorded in the Yoga Loft above the Bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we mix techno music while wearing jumpsuits and definitely rubber horse masks. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. I like pee. (laughs) I still like pee. Oh my word. I pooped some pee. I pooped some pee. Devil's Triangle. Oh my God. Kevin, Toby, Laura. <laughs> uh, Devil's Triangle. Oh no, 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 no. Ew. Uh, Ew. Well, it's either Laura Ew. or you, Rebecca. It's a hostile work environment. <laughs> Someone call HR. Oh God. Uh, uh. <laughs> Partners in crime media.
Grove helps you find the best non-toxic home and personal care products and delivers them right to your door. With customizable auto shipments, you can pause or cancel anytime. You're in control. Find out how committed Grove is to its customers. With a 100% happiness guarantee and free shipping, Grove makes it easy to discover amazing and affordable natural home and personal care products with the confidence of supporting a safer environment for your family. Right now, our listeners can try Grove with a two-month VIP membership and a bonus gift by going to Grove co slash crime that's grove.co slash crime not grove.com grove makes it easy to have a happy healthy home everything is changing so fast i mean back in my day we were lucky if we could get one video to load but now with the xfinity 10g network you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag the future starts now restrictions apply actual speeds vary and not guaranteed